But Lord, I pray that this broken vessel would proclaim your word with clarity as it deserves. And that you would reopen our hearts to clear away distraction and clutter to receive your word with all purity as we deserve to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a season in my life long ago when I was a distance runner. Loved it, couldn't get enough of it. Most people seem to run once a day. I ran twice a day. I'm a bit on the long and lean side, and it was a natural fit for me. For a period of time, my diet, my sleep schedule, my work, my school, my leisure activities all revolved around running. I was a runner and a fan of runners. During that season long ago, I was watching the 1972 Olympics. Can you? Some of you weren't even born in 72. I was watching that, and what I wanted to see was the Olympic marathon with Frank Shorter, who was one of my heroes in that sport. The, the, the Olympic marathon is, large, is exclusively run outside of the stadium, but they reserved the last 300 meters or so to be run inside the stadium. So if you're a spectator, you're watching track and field for two hours, knowing that the, the marathon is going on, you're receiving updates, and there's a building of anticipation that, you know, an hour from now, a half hour from now, 10 minutes from now, five minutes from now, oh, any minute now, the lead runner of the marathon is going to enter into the stadium. And sure enough, it happened. A runner entered into the stadium, and the crowd just went nuts, standing ovation. Two hours of agony. Way to go, guy. Everyone seemed to be excited except the American commentator that I was listening to on the, radio, on the uh, TV program. He said, that man is not Frank Shorter. I know Frank Shorter. That is an imposter. Get that man off the track. <laughs> this guy was really mad. He kept shouting, that's not Frank Shorter. That's an imposter. Get him off the track. And, and finally, I think someone figured it out. And they, they did. He were, here was a fake runner in a fake uniform with a fake number. And, and, and to the crowd from a long distance, it looked like the real thing. The crowd didn't know. They didn't know this guy. And they didn't know Frank Shorter. But the commentator knew Frank Shorter because he had run with Frank Shorter and spent some time with him. He was a friend of Frank Shorter's. <clears throat> well, I put that out there just to make this point. Sometimes the best way to discern an imposter or that which is fake is to get to know that which is real. Now, there are so many myriads of religious opportunity out there in our country alone. You can't know them all, but you can know Jesus. You can't discern exactly how this group or that group or another group deviates from the gospel. But you can get to know Jesus so well that when the false article comes along, you are able to say, that's not Jesus. Never mind with me, I'm not going down that path. That story of Frank Shorter and the imposter is kind of sort of like Jerusalem in the ancient world. You see, there were imposters, false messiahs, who showed up from time to time, and they heralded a crowd. And the crowd didn't know. 
because they didn't know scripture well enough. And so for a period of time, there were cheers and there was attention and there was glory given to somebody who claimed to be a Messiah of some sort. Not only did Messiahs and false saviors, excuse me, I should say false Messiahs and false saviors exist in the ancient world. In our country, even today, there are false teachers, false messiahs, false saviors, false groups, false religions that clamor for our attention, and they make false promises, and they offer false hope. How are you to know? Before we look at John chapter 7, which is where we are going today, let's think about Jesus in 2023. Here's why this matters. You don't want to be wrong about Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who offers eternal life and abundant life. He's the only one with the power and authority to offer to you life transformation. Jesus is the only one who offers a relationship with God that is deep, real, and life-changing. There are no other alternatives. The, Jesus' offer is abundant. It's to the whole world. Nobody would be excluded from coming to him. Here's one way to look at it. To whom do you run during hard times? Or to what? do you run during hard times? To whom you turn or to what you turn when you are afflicted, when you are hurt, when you are crushed, reveals a lot about what you think is a spiritual priority in your life. You want and you need Jesus and only Jesus because he is the only one who can rescue and redeem, and protect, and provide. In John chapter 7, Jesus puts himself in the center of God's work in the ancient world, Israel. And this relates to both the old covenant that is coming to a close and the new covenant that will be inaugurated by his substitutionary death for sin on the cross. What really separated Jesus from all impostors was his claim to be sent, and we'll see that in our passage today, to be sent by God to be Israel's Messiah and our Savior. Plus the willingness of Jesus to die for sin separated him from all other claims. Now, my aim this morning is to show you that only Jesus can satisfy your soul. This is why it's so important to understand John chapter 7. You will receive a lot of attention from other offers, other teachers, other groups, other saviors, so, so to speak. But only Jesus can satisfy your soul. And I see two important ideas in John chapter 7 which support this big idea that only Jesus can satisfy your soul. So this is the way we're going to look at it. First, there is the Old Testament prediction. 
And I'll tell you in advance, we're going to spend most of our time with that because it sets up the second aspect, the New Testament invitation. So really, I'm talking to you about two divisions, two ideas present in John chapter 7 that support the bigger idea that only Jesus can satisfy your soul. First, the Old Testament prediction, and secondly, the New Testament invitation. And you heard some inventory word, invitational Tory words, however you're supposed to say it, in invitation type of words this morning when I read from Isaiah, Old Testament, and Matthew, New Testament. So John chapter 7, first five verses, no, we're not going to go through the whole thing. But first five sets up the, uh, the setting, and we need to understand the setting in order to understand the passage. I'm going to start reading with verse 1, John chapter 7. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Wow, we're in John chapter 7, and they've got a contract out for Jesus. Verse 2, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things. Show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, it's easy in Bible study to be drawn to that which is unusual and kind of interesting. And, and so we would like to delve into, I, I mean, it might be a natural bent to delve into, well, what's up with Jesus and the brothers and the dysfunctional family and, and, and spend some time on that. But there's something even more important than that with regard to the setting that's super easy to miss. It's found in verse 2. We read it. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. That's it. The Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we tend to think of a feast as uh, something that involves in food. You know, Thanksgiving feast. Christmas feast. As if the main purpose of the feast was to eat food. The purpose of the feast in the Old Testament were to remember and to celebrate. They had seven, which came in two clusters, three in the spring and four in the fall. Tabernacles is in the fall. This is the last feast of tabernacles for Jesus. In the spring, at the time of Passover, Jesus will die. And so that tells us the time frame, this is about six months before the end of Jesus' life. If you have six months to live and you know it, everything you say and do are going to matter. The list of priorities gets reshuffled. The entire deck is reshuffled. And now Jesus knows, okay, it, we're clicking in. Six months to go. Everything he does is intentional and it teaches, it's significant, we need to pay attention. Don't be um, misled that in John 
verse 21 Gospels that we're only in, in, in um, excuse me, 21 chapters. We're in chapter 7. This is still early on. Six months to go before Jesus pursues the cross. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles lasted eight days. It began and ended with a, with a, a Saturday, with the um, Sabbath. And during the eight days of the feast, the, ta- the Israelites would live in tabernacles, which is, you know, booths. You know, they'd make little, they would construct little huts, like a tent, but more crude. And, and so this was to remind them of God's protection in the desert when they had to escape Egypt, and they had virtually nothing. But God's also provision when after they escaped Egypt, and they had virtually nothing, and they were living in shacks, tents more or less. God provided for them. Their every need was met. And, and, and it also reminded them of the day that Messiah is coming because we don't have to do this anymore as a nation. We, we, we escaped from Egypt. That time has passed. God provided and he protected and we're glad for that. But we await a coming Messiah who will deliver us from oppression. They might have missed that it was largely spiritual oppression. But they got the part about oppression Correctly, they lived in humble conditions in a tabernacle for a week. Now, to, I, I mentioned that there's seven feasts, seven festivals. So the Jews had this rhythm in life. Three of those times, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, they were supposed to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Feast of tabernacles, feast of weeks, feast of unleavened bread. More familiar to you would be Tabernacles and Passover and Pentecost. Those were the times when Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem. And don't think men, just only men, but men who would bring their families to Jerusalem. So there's, the, there's this rhythm that is worked out in God's people. Seven times a year they're doing a feast. Three times a year, every single year, they're going to Jerusalem. And every single week, they are stopping and work and resting. It's not, they're choosing not to work every single week on Sabbath. There's this natural rhythm of, of reminding themselves and remembering that God protects, God provides, God redeems, God rescues, God restores. This aspect of the Jews being... Um, told to go to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. The entire family, the, the, the married men would bring their families. That's implied. That tells us how important it's, it is to gather as God's people. God's people have never been a random collection of individuals scattered here and there and wherever. And they could do their own thing. Gather on the Sabbath. Gather on the festivals. Gather in Jerusalem. This is why we take membership. In part, this is why we take membership so seriously around here. We want God's people to gather and to recognize as brothers and sisters in Christ with membership in this local church, you belong to one another. Don't scatter and stay scattered. Gather together with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. God provides God protects, God redeems, God restores. We celebrate and we enjoy that together. Let's look at verse 25. So the gist of what I want to read is 25 through 39. That was just the warm-up introduction. Now I'll go twice as long with the bulk of the passage. Okay, here we go. 
Verse 25, at that point, some of the people, oh, notice the, um, the differing ideas and opinions about Jesus. One of the reasons why Jesus needs to make it so clear as to who he is, sent by God, God's Son, Savior of the world, and Israel's Messiah. There's all kinds of talk going around about him. So verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this, man they are trying, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? So he's in the temple courts. He's teaching now at the Feast of Tabernacles. Hey, aren't they trying to kill this dude? Or am I wrong about that? Verse 26. Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ, which is the Messiah? You might have a Holman or a Christian Standard Bible that brings it across as Messiah. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me. You know where I am from. I am not here on my own, notice this word, but he who sent me is true. Now, I didn't read it, but that's the second time he's used the word sent in this chapter. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Third time that word sent appears in this chapter. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous things than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me four times in one chapter, sent. You will look for me, but you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people have scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And we'll stop there. They're wondering who Jesus really is. And in dealing with that, Jesus inserts himself into the Feast of Tabernacles. You want to know who I am? Let me tell you. Let me show you who I am. And he inserts himself right into the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus demonstrated that he alone can satisfy our souls when he satisfied the prophetic signs and symbols of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And we can see this when we look at Jesus, when we look at how this Feast of Tabernacle affected the Old Testament Jews when they were under good leadership and they responded correctly to the Feast of Tabernacles. So rather than looking back at when it was originally given, let's move back to the Old Testament. When the Feast of Tabernacles was correctly embraced, 
That's what Jesus is talking about. So I'm going to direct your attention to the book of Nehemiah. If you have something digital, Nehemiah is probably easy to find. But if you're turning pages like I am, go to Psalms and turn left. Keep going left. Psalms, Job, and then Ezra, and then you'll encounter Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll start with Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. So what has happened at this point is King Josiah has asked for reform. He is a good king. In fact, in my opinion, best king ever out of 40 kings in the Old Testament era. Loved it. Loved that guy. Loved Josiah. Loved what he did. Okay. And so now they're, they're cleaning up the temple in some area and they find, uh, holy moly, there's a book of the law. There's scripture. And they decide to gather the people together and to read scripture. And, uh, well, well, we'll find out what happens here. So, uh, let's see. How about verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 8? Ezra, a priest, opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up, which is what we sometimes do even to this day. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with faces to the ground. Jump down to verse 13. We will just bypass a bunch of names that I can't pronounce, so we'll jump down to verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, uh, remember, families gathered together, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. So they, they didn't, they'd forgotten about this. And then somebody's reading the scripture and they realize, oh, we're supposed to keep the festival of the tabernacles? Let's do that. Verse 15. And, at, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem. Go back out into the hill country and bring back, here's how they made them, the tabernacles. Bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make booths just as it is written. Wow. So they decided to follow the instructions written down in God's word. Could have been done doing that earlier, but at least they do it now under the um, reform led by King Josiah. Let's uh, move forward to Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 15. So now this is a prayer. And the prayer begins by praising God and then reviewing some of the salvation works of God that they have been the beneficiaries of. Verse, let's see, did I say 15? Verse 15, chapter 9, verse 15. In, this is in the prayer. person is talking to God. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. 
You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give to them. Jump down to verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. That is the only verse in the Old Testament that connects in one sentence the manna, the Holy Spirit, and water. And it's mentioned in conjunction with the Feast of Tabernacles. And I don't know if I read enough to give clarity, but it's also mentioned in, in conjunction with repentance of sin. So the people, are, they're, they're hearing the law and they're, they're weeping because they know they have fallen short and violated the word of God. So there's repentance, there's remorse. They're coming back to God, admitting and wanting God to bless them. They follow the instructions and they realize in the Feast of Tabernacles, we have this remembrance as well as this looking forward to God's provision, God's protection, God's rescue, God's rede redemption. What I want to say to you is that, actually, we're going to go back to John chapter 7 as I say this, not necessarily reading something just yet, but maybe you want to be turning pages. So back to John chapter 7 and a bit more on the New Old Testament prediction. When Jesus poured out water, that was more than saying, look at me. I'm taking control of this situation. I'm doing what the, old, what the high priest normally did. I'm inserting myself. Look at me. Look at me. It was more than that. It's a claim that Jesus makes that he is the one who is sent by God to be Israel's Messiah, our Savior. He is the one to, to whom... The Feast of Tabernacles point. You see, to know Jesus truly is to receive him as he has revealed himself to be. To repent of sin and to embrace him as Savior and Lord. Jesus is everything that the Feast of Tabernacles points to, and so much more. Again, three times, or no, four times, four times, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus said, God sent him. Jesus was sent by God to defeat sin and to offer to people life that is truly life. That's the bar. For anyone who claims to be a Messiah, a Savior, a teacher of religious things that offers a new and improved version of Christianity, that's the bar. You would have to meet or exceed that bar set by Jesus in order to have a legitimate claim 
to be able to offer spiritual truth that somehow supersedes Jesus. That means Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, would need to exceed the bar set by Jesus. You don't know you need to know everything about Joseph. You just need to know Jesus. Was he even that much? No. Then dismiss Mormonism entirely without even investigating it. Compare the two founders. Charles Taz Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness, must exceed the bar set by Jesus. Well, he didn't do that. Mary Baker Edder, Eddy, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, must exceed the bar set by Jesus. Well, she didn't do that. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, would have to exceed the bar set by Jesus. No, he didn't do that. Same with anyone who claims to have been sent by God with a new and improved religion or a way to God, they would have to meet the bar set by Jesus. No one else ever has. Jesus uniquely fulfilled the demands and the predictions of the old covenant and his death alone inaugurated the new covenant. No one else is like Jesus. All others would be an imposter if they claim to have the source of spiritual truth. Not only is Jesus greater than all religious or religions and religious teachings, Jesus is greater than anyone or anything that you run to when you are in crisis. When you hurt, where do you go? When it's three in the morning and you can't sleep because of the stress that, is, that you are reviewing in your mind that things could turn out horrible, where do you go? All too often in the life of the Christian, Jesus becomes the backup plan. When all else fails, try Jesus. But that's not really what we see in Scripture, is it? And yet no person is more powerful, no teaching is more wise, no group is more real than what Jesus offers. Deep, real, life transformation in a relationship with God through him. Wow. So we know that Jesus is the one and the only one sent by God who met God's perfect standard. Prophesied in the Old Testament, perfect in the New Testament, power for all who him follow him today. That's the bar. At the end of the day, the Feast of Tabernacles, during the Feast of Tabernacles, each day, so that's, that's eight days, at the end of the day, the, the high priest would come out and, and pour water. So the, by the time Jesus does this, remember it said, and the last and greatest day of the feast, right, 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 verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, so he's pouring the water out, he's claiming, he, he's, the, he's the guy. They've seen this day after day after day after day. High priest comes out, and at that moment when the high priest comes out, Jesus comes and he points to himself, that's the bar. No one else can do this. Jesus is sent by God for this moment so that he could be Israel's Messiah and our Savior. When the purpose of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles was in full view, the people were to remember God's provision 
in God's protection, his redemption, his rescue, his reconciliation. And Jesus stepped in and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. That's the invitation. So we spent the bulk of our time, as I said, on the Old Testament prediction, and now we move to the New Testament invitation. Let's see, uh, verse uh, 37 again. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So I see three key words here. Thirst, come, and drink. That's the invitation. Thirst, come, and drink. To thirst is to recognize your need for Jesus. To thirst in terms of salvation is to, really, it's to come to understand reality. God is holy and you are not. Apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dry. And apart from Jesus, there is no spiritual life. It's possible for a Christian to allow a dry spell to turn into a drought. We all go through dry spells. You get busy, get distracted, life is hard, it's heavy, it's busy. And get out of the habit of connecting with God. And before you realize it, you're really not walking with the Savior anymore. Dry spells are normal. Droughts are deadly. The key to walking the spiritual life for a long haul is don't let the dry spells become droughts. Jesus here clearly alludes to the Holy Spirit, and I say clearly because this is John's commentary on the matter. So Jesus says, come and drink, come to me and drink. And then verse 39, gospel writer John said this. Hearing this, he had a chance to write anything he wanted to. He wrote this. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus sends the all-powerful Holy Spirit into the life of every Christian, and you need the Holy Spirit to live the life that God has for you, lest you be Christian by name only. Okay, well, it's, it's not enough to recognize your need for Jesus, just like, you know, he, hearing about Jesus doesn't save you. You, you need to do something. So I see thirst and then come. Come to Jesus as the only source of soul-satisfying water. To come to Jesus for the non-believer means to come to Jesus for salvation. Come to Jesus instead of trying to do life on your own. And come to Jesus means more than having a positive attitude about Jesus or perhaps being a fan of Jesus. It means coming to Jesus as the one and only who can give you eternal life and salvation. Now, to come to Jesus as a believer is to surrender yourself to do his will. 
Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and, and follow me. You see, the Christian lives a surrendered life and prays surrendered prayers. One of the ways you can check your level of self-centeredness, and I'll be the first to admit I have this terrible selfish, self-centered bent. Reflect on what you pray for. Self is very important. Jesus died for self. He died for you. He died to purchase a relationship for you. This is not to knock self. Jesus died for yourself. But self is not the end of the matter. Christianity is not about you. For instance, when a man becomes a husband and a woman becomes a wife, when a person becomes a parent, when a person becomes a supervisor or an executive, or climbs the ladder in some way with people under him that report to him. When someone becomes a teacher or a counselor, there is a necessary surrender of rights. You can't just do anything you want. The married person can, can no longer act like a single person. You can't just do anything you want. You can't just say anything you want. You can't think anything you want. You can't just feel anything you want. Now you have to live a surrendered life. You have the privilege and the power equipped by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian to order your life according to the priority that God has led you to embrace. Jesus invites you to come and to surrender. Now, if you stop there, nope. Thirst, come and drink. If you are thirsty and somebody hands you water, it doesn't do any good unless you drink. Water given to you when you are thirsty doesn't help unless you drink. And in the ancient world, they knew that to be thirsty in the desert was to be dying. That Jesus came here and lived and rose again <clears throat> doesn't really help you unless you receive him. Jesus said, come to me. Because there is no other offer, and there is no other Savior and Lord. If you've been thinking that Jesus is your ticket to heaven, you are stopping short. Yes, Jesus is your access into heaven, but so much more than that. Jesus is the Lord of your life. Follow him. And he will never let you down. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gift of today. We get to be here to see the enthusiasm and the joy of the African choir. And we get to hear your word taught. And we are challenged by who Jesus is. This, this is the brilliance and beauty of Jesus that we just can't, cannot imagine on our own. That this fashion of pouring out water on a certain day was fulfillment of Old Testament prediction. And it led him to give a New Testament invitation. Oh, Lord, we just, we marvel at that. 
And we have to admit that there are times when we, when we don't drink. And we are sorry for that. And I know the excuses are plentiful. We're, we're busy, we're tired, we got other things to do. Or even like me today, we don't feel so good. We'll do it later. And later never comes. God, help us to grab you on the run if that's what we have to do. If we have kids aplenty and our, our, our lives are just sort of stretched in different directions, we, we want to now learn how to grab, get, get, get a hold of you on the, uh, on the run or allow you to get a hold of us. Maybe that's what I should pray. But help us, Lord, to not be foolish, but to know what the will of God is for our lives. And we need this communion with you somehow in some way. Help us to get there. Thank you, God, for the life that you offer to us. You make it so simple <clears throat> that if we thirst, and we know we do, we can come and we can drink. And we, know, we notice there's no qualifiers in drink, and we, we, we thank you for that. That we can come, as it was sung earlier this morning, just as I am, we can come and receive what you have for us. Wow. You are just so good and so kind. This morning we find you irresistible and we want what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>